Welcome to the Ideas Exchange by ASX, connecting you with investment experts, market updates and ideas. I am Jacinta King, Business Development Manager, Investment Products at ASX, and this is our regular podcast covering everything from investment trends through to different ways to invest using a variety of products. A quick note about this podcast. Information is provided for educational purposes only and is not intended to include or constitute financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from an Australian Financial Services licensee before making any investment decisions. Please refer to ASX's full disclaimer with respect to this podcast on the section of the ASX website titled The Ideas Exchange by ASX. Welcome to the Ideas Exchange. I'm your host, Jacinta King from ASX. Founded in 2003 and based in Auckland, New Zealand, Milford manage investments of over $16 billion. And they entered the Australian market in 2014 when they established a Sydney office. They initially offered products to the institutional market, but in recent years, their products have been made available to retail. Will Cotain is a portfolio manager at Milford and one of the lead portfolio managers of the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund. It's quoted on the ASX under ticker code MFOA. And today we're going to discuss Milford's investment position against the backdrop of high interest rates and sticky inflation. Welcome to the Ideas Exchange, Will. Hi, Jacinta, and thanks for having me on. You are most welcome. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We've got a lot to get through. I've got a lot of questions for you, so let's get get into it. But before we begin, can you provide our listeners a bit about your background and the work that you do at Milford? Sure. So, yeah, I uh, I got into this industry just at the back end of the great financial crisis um, in 2009. So I was, uh, before that, I was actually a professional triathlete for a couple of seasons. That was after finishing up my education and so on. I pursued my triathlon career and had a bit of fun um, competing around the world, but then uh, decided that I wanted to put my study um, and apply my passion for investing in, in a professional sense. So I, uh, I joined Milford Asset Management originally in Auckland uh, at that point in time and quickly got put to work doing New Zealand and Australian equities and uh, wasn't too long. I think it was about 2014 Milford um, sent me over to Sydney to, to set up the Australian business. So we, we went over there first just to get closer to the companies we were researching and to be able to hire good good Australian um, investment personnel to help us do Australian equities. And the, the sort of second phase of the plan was once we'd built up our team and research better, we uh, we began to launch products in Australia about five years ago and um, and, and recently, obviously, MFOA listed on the ASX. So uh, these days, my uh, my role is uh, I'm the head of Australian equities, so I manage the Australian equities team, and I also am uh, one of the lead portfolio managers on the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund, which is our sort of flagship product uh, in Australia. That's so interesting. I didn't know that background, um, that you were a professional triathlete. And um, I'm curious there in that, do you find that some of the, the, you know, skills and discipline it took to be an athlete, you transfer across to some of the, you know, the, the ways that you approach work now? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, there's the general hate of failure or the, you know, <laughs> learning to <laughs> And both must in, achieve at all at all costs. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, for all but uh, a very few sports people, we, you you fail a lot and often, and you've got to learn to deal with that. Um, you tend to have competitive people get into sports and and also funds management. 
So they tend to be people who like to do well and don't like don't like to fail. But you you know part of it's learning to deal with those setbacks yeah. and use that as a motivation I and mean, not not getting too uh, too caught up in the failures and you know, taking the lessons. So there's actually plenty that applies, I believe. I think I think um, we'll have to have you back and we'll focus. We'll start from that side of it because yeah, I think you're right. We do see quite a lot of athletes who enter the finance industry. And um, you know, dare say resilience and all sorts of things come into play there. So um, I don't want to digress because we want to stick to what we planned for today. So um, look, firstly, you know, what what everybody still the ever present thing is interest rates and cost of living, inflation. So the U.S. Federal Reserve paused rate hikes at the beginning of November, and in Australia, the RBA announced another rate rise last week. So we've gone from four point one percent to. 4.35%. We're up another 25 basis points this month. So this potentially will continue the knock-on effect of decreased consumer spending as people feeling that pinch and, and combined with you know low wages growth. Looking at some of Milford's recent commentary, you lead with caution at the moment. You have a measured approach. So can you share some of Milford's thinking around how to find value in companies with this backdrop of persistent inflation and interest rate rises? Yes. Uh, so the first thing I think to appreciate is that you know this backdrop of rising interest rates after a period of low rates uh, for so long that push valuations on on equities to quite high levels is, is a backdrop that is just going to depress returns for a while. So from that point, don't we don't need to force returns. We don't need to shoot for fifteen or twenty percent years at the moment we we start from the you know certainly if we're looking for 12 18 months kind of view is that most likely you know the the australian market um remains in a, a big trading range without breaking out to the upside and beginning another 20 percent bull market run so we, we're not trying to be greedy and shoot for high returns we've just got to let let these higher interest rates filter through to valuation and equities and, and positioning in equities and, and that, that filtering process takes quite a lot of time because a lot of the money in the world is controlled by big super funds and big pension funds and they're not like the little speedboat hedge funds who will change their asset allocation from one week to the next in quite significant ways these are super funds and pension funds under big, big boats and they just take a long time to turn. So we just got to let that process work its way through, which we do think still takes another 12 months. And then our job is to try, you know, protect capital if there's a large downturn on the way and not lose much of that hard-earned capital. And if we can do that, when we do work through this process into, uh, into another bull market, we can capture that bull run with um, with our capital intact and try hit the ones and twos and if, to get to pick up a few returns along the way, but not not swing for the fences. So how, how do we do that? It's all very well. Well, um, you know, we've tended to be weighted more to value stocks than growth stocks over the last 12 months. Milford is style agnostic. We're happy to be, you know, very overweight growth stocks or, or very overweight value. We will, we've got a top down process we use to decide um, when and how we want to do that. But um, higher interest rates um, and the starting point of high valuations on a lot of growth stocks and technology stocks meant that that was a fairly easy place to avoid. And we waited a lot more to sort of energy companies and resources and insurers and companies that, given that they're trading on cash for yields of 10% or so, or in, in some cases higher, that means that, yeah, you, you tend to get, they tend to not be knocked around 
as much when interest rates go up because you can collect those strong cash earnings very, very immediately. So that that was one way that we are seeking to get better returns. And we still have a bit of a value bent today, by the way. So, that, you know, it remains um, not, not as drastic as what it was last year, but it's still there. And from this view that markets are really in a large trading range, we have the ability to raise cash a bit when markets are high. So the ASX is sort of 7,300, 7,400, 7,500. We've tend to be raising a bit of cash in the fund and taking some profits. And then we're putting that money back to work when the market falls down towards 7,000 or below. So you can pick up a few little gains just by uh, moving your cash in and out. We do rotate between sectors uh, fairly heavily if if those sectors have become particularly oversold or under or, or overbought and the value's there. So we you know, we can dial our, our bank's exposure down to zero or we might take it up to 12 or 14% if the sector's completely uh, beaten up. So... I'll leave it at that. We could go on for another 10 minutes on that question, but we better, we better, I'd better yeah, leave it there. Yeah, because you're already touching on some of the other questions I had I had for you, but so we'll go through those as well. Um, but I thought just as, as we're talking about the stocks that you cover, we've just gone through earnings season. So what I, my, what did my husband say to me the other day? He said, you're a realist, but a practicing optimist. So I, I, I realistic, I look at things and then I go, but let's try and see what the good news story is. So, was there anything there from the companies that you analyse um, in reporting season? Well, there was far more bad news stories than good ones, unfortunately. And that's just the nature of where we are in the earnings cycle. Um, yeah. Earnings earnings in the ASX 200 have sort of fallen 10, 11% since the peak last year. But there, but there's always, that's the great thing about stock picking, isn't it? There's, um, there's always something and someone going well. Even in the greatest bear markets of all time, there's some stocks that still go up in the face of wider markets going down. So a couple of the ones that we've liked recently. So at the moment, of course, we've got annual general meetings going through and a lot of companies are updating earnings. We like Viva um, Energy, who had an investor day um, just last week, and they they painted a picture of their medium-term kind of earnings targets, which were um, quite significant and quite uh, far above expectations. And that's based on the backdrop of um, Viva's been taking on the Coles um, stores and the and the OTR stores from South Australia, and they've got a lot of upside in their retail business. So just optimizing the procurement, the pricing strategies, that should generate large sustainable gains in the earnings from their, 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 their stores and, and the petrol stations. Um, and we uh, already had a very favorable view on the refining business, which is just um, globally, there's a shortage of refining, given that no one wants to build new refineries in the context of peak oil around the corner. Other other updates, we insurers are going well, where the competition's very benign and they're making good margins. Chrysos, which is a small cap company that only listed last year, it does, it's got these uh, a product that goes on mine sites to do gold assay, you know, studying the assays that come out of the drilling cores and um, it's it's picking up a lot of demand. So it's a shining light in a, in a, in a tough spot at the moment, doing very well. And there's a little biotech company we own called Neuron Pharma, which has just started sales of its first ever drug that it's commercialised, and those sales are beating expectations. So there's um there are companies out there doing well still. So it's uh good to know. You touched on just earlier um that how you can sort of shift and rotate through sectors. So the, are there specific sectors that you're finding favourable? in the Australian market at the moment? Yeah, so I mean, just to finish off insurance, which I touched on, we've been overweight there for over a year and um, probably 18 months, really. Um, we remain overweight. So, um, you know, with these mature sectors, whether it's telcos, supermarkets, banks or insurance, you, you typically find that you only do well when competition's benign. And then these sectors go through cycles. One competitor's trying to pick up market share and for years, every company in that sector will do poorly. Think Telstra doing poorly for year, years and years when Optus 
furiously tried to win market share and didn't focus on profitability. Insurance had been a terrible sector for a long time, but then what's basically happened is as as inflation came in and drove up the costs of claims um, for insurers, and it also drove up the cost of reinsurance, um, it's really hurt the smaller competitors, the small minnows in the sector that have for were, were chipping away at the market share of the big guys like IG and Suncorp. These small companies were completely reliant on, uh, reliant on reinsurance funding, where Suncorp and IG self-insure some of their own books. So the, the uh, 50% increases in reinsurance prices have really hurt the small competitors and, uh, and uh, the small competitors also don't have as much negotiating power with suppliers in terms of managing their claims costs. So it's basically meant that these small competitors that for most of the last decade were driving prices down are now driving prices up. And IG and Suncorp can just sit there and follow the prices up and collect the margin along the way. So, um, you know, not not something that people want to hear when we're when we're paying paying huge insurance bills. But hey, our jobs and investors to find the companies in a good position, and we think in insurance is still in a good position. More recently, uh, we've really dialed up our iron ore exposure. Now we've always had a core holding and resources in iron ore over the last uh, couple of years, but we've dialed it up to a high level now. And that was basically on the back of a few things President Xi did about three weeks ago as he did he, he did uh, three um, new things that we hadn't seen uh, in a long time for the first is he, he'd been the finance minister and and put a new one in then they did a mid-budget federal budget government change so they changed the budget at mid-cycle so out of cycle which hasn't been done in 22 years um, and he also went in and visited the PBOC, the um, the central bank in China, went into their offices, which he has, hasn't done in his 12, 13 years in power. So three three big moves that sort of signal to us that President Xi's probably had a guts full of the economy where it is, and he's, they're, they're going to try to get things humming along. And, the, and this is a backdrop where the iron ore price had already been pretty good at 115, 120 US dollars, the iron ore price has since moved up to about 131 US dollars. BHP and Rio are spitting off cash. You know, they're on eight, nine times PE multiples. If we're right that China is now going to take more significant steps to accelerate the economy, the iron ore price should at least be, you know, it may go much higher than 130 or at least stay reasonably elevated. It means that there's just great earnings and cash flow to be had from these major miners. One more question on, on sectors is what about materials? Are you bullish there and how are you positioned? Yeah, so it is very much through the iron ore ones, which I've just, yeah, um, that, just on that thesis. On, yeah. So outside of iron ores, we don't have huge amounts. Um, lithium, we've got a little bit in IGO, but we're a little bit cautious that we haven't seen a bottom in the lithium cycle yet there. We're not seeing the signs of the mine closures and there's still inventory elevated um, on finished batteries in China. So we we, we like lithium long run but we're just a bit waiting a little bit yet before firing all our bullets into the sector we want to see signs of inventories coming down we want to see the headlines of lithium mines closing to, to give us a bit of a signal that this washout has run its course but yeah energy i mean um not so much materials but we do yeah we, we maintain a fairly decent core yeah, energy weight through santos and the refiners and beach energy actually now i note that you're sometimes cautious on banks What's your thinking behind that? Some love it and will always keep it primarily. So, you mean your classic Australian equity large cap fund will always sort of be within four or five percent of the market weight of banks. If you're twenty five percent weight, most of them will have somewhere between eighteen and twenty two percent. They they run just small underweights. 
most of the time. We we run an absolute return equity fund, so we're much more uh, benchmark unaware. So we will go down and then have done gone to zero percent in banks um, as a, as a starting point. If we like banks, we're more likely to have ten or twelve percent in banks rather than twenty five percent because from an absolute point of view, you don't, we don't think you need twenty five percent in one sector or one banking sector. Prudent diversification. So we'll we from that point we'll we'll differ a lot to other fund managers and um, the market on banks exposure. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we we bought banks during the Silicon Valley Bank crisis and when their earnings were weak back in May and the sector got beaten up. So we were picking up CBA at 90 and we picked up a lot of NAB and and then now um, later in the you know later in the year as they had a bit of a run up and over the third quarter uh, we let most of our banks go and that's because the sector had started to rally again but the earnings outlook would just keep getting worse and that's basically the margin outlook continues to deteriorate so the so the pressures that banks are facing are, are on a number of fronts. The first is the costs are going up. There's significant wage inflation. So they're driving up in a lot of cases the sort of underlying cost inflation is sort of 5 6 7% before they try to remove some costs to keep that at bay. But it's really just a competition of mortgages. When the mortgage market isn't growing fast like it is at the moment, the banks are all competing furiously amongst each other to try and maintain the size of their books. They don't want their book going down and a, a backdrop of their cost base is going up 6-7% because that's a very quick way to destroy your earnings. So they're, they're competing away the profitability of mortgages and um, on the funding side, they're also competing furiously on deposits. As some of the cheap funding from the RBA, given over COVID, rolls off and, and customers are also able to get decent interest rates on deposits now are shopping around a lot more. It's making the banks have to pay a lot more for those de- that deposit funding. You know, this is all fairly known. It's nothing new. I'm not saying anything that anyone in the, uh, you know, close to that market doesn't know. But for us, it just means that they're not particularly cheap in the back of that. We don't think they're expensive. We think they're a fair value. They're fine. But, you know, we would rather seek returns elsewhere where we think the industry isn't competitive, like insurance, for example. Thanks for going through that, because that's something I picked up on in in my readings about what Milford do. Um, My next question is, what's your view on tech? And does it make it into the portfolio? Or do you just keep an eye on it at the moment? Yeah, we'd, we've started to add some back recently, actually. So yeah, most of last year, we, um, we we generally avoided the technology stocks as they were very expensive, very crowded, mm-hmm. and uh, higher interest rates were always going to be headwind. That played out. Yeah, the sector had a bit of a good, pretty good run earlier this year. Some of them are coming back now. It's creating interesting opportunities. Zero was very weak after its result with a slower sub-growth in the UK and the US um, in costs. Not quite as good as hope. We believe the company, you know, the company's worth hundred dollars, even if the US doesn't work, and and if the US works, it could be worth two hundred dollars, close to two hundred dollars a share. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, as it pulled back to a hundred, we're kind of happy to start accumulating some some of that business because we think the cost out program ultimately will deliver them, and they'll have um, some success in the US in time. So and the other one that some of the strategies have been picking up at Milford over the last sort of month or two has been Wisetech, which got knocked around pretty heavily <laughs> on. On its result, but it's an exceptional business with very good, um, very good competitive position. And I mean, it's just so dominant, and he's almost no one within um, anywhere near them. So uh, there's a pretty, pretty good certain long-term growth path there. Yes, like like WiseTech's been expensive for a long time, so you've got to pay up a little bit to get it. But at least you can buy it now after it's pulled back thirty percent since the recent highs. But yeah, tech tech we will own more if the you know the value valuations are still generally the thing that hold us back on buying too many of them. Those normalise more, then yeah, we'll we'll certainly be looking to dial up more technology exposure. Now you touched on it earlier that um, you can move to elevated cash and I see that you did through September. So what indicators are you looking for before you deploy some of that cash? 
Yeah, well, here we are talking on the 15th of November, and that mm. cash is mostly gone, so it's been deployed. So oh, it's yeah, pretty, okay, great. Uh, pretty easy question to, to, to answer, because <laughs> I can now say in hindsight why we did it. Yeah, we in our Australian Absolute Growth Fund, we can take cash all the way up to 50% if we want, and we have done so over the last um, – we did it before COVID, and we've done so – various times last year and we and we would take it all the way down to zero if we're particularly um, bullish in the market generally what why that cash was high is because monetary policy we we thought had more to tighten we didn't think investors were particularly underweight equities yet this is going back to august september we thought valuations were getting increasingly expensive versus bonds so equity whereas bond yields went higher and equities didn't derate um, the p multiple of six and a half and the asx 200 was pretty expensive and we thought that just incremental kind of quantitative tightening and monetary policy flows would be would be a headwind for liquidity in the markets. And then uh, as the market came down below 7,000, a couple of things happened that signaled to us it was time to put cash to work because one, just bottom up, a number mm. of companies became better value. So ignore everything macro, ignore the ignore the bigger world as some companies start to look good value because they pull back. Well, we deployed some cash into those, but particularly a bit of a positioning flushed out. So uh, mm. no, it's, it's clear to us that there's some data that we show that a lot of certain strategies and cohorts of investors have got very bearish and very short the market. And that's always a contrary indicator that the returns in markets might improve going forward. Valuations finally improved a little bit as the ASX 200 came down uh, overall. Um, and then you had Jerome, uh, the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, blink in his most recent monetary policy statement. And the RBA has continued to be a bit confusing. One moment, moment the hawkish, one moment, uh, the dovish. But uh, certainly a blink from Jerome Powell on, on his how resolute he was to continue tightening is what opened up the market to have a relief rally, allow bond prices to cool down. And then that relief rally tends to then force in these hedge funds who are particularly short or any fund managers sitting on too much cash. Most um, fund managers don't want to fight the pain of being underinvested as markets rally too long. So they, they get forced in. So we we got all the way up to, you know, reduce cash levels from um, nearly 40% down to 10%. So we're sort of 90% invested in equities at the moment obviously helping out the market's doing well this month. We would still consider that to be more of a tactical bullish positioning for us in the fund. We aren't hugely optimistic about next year. We're not particularly bearish on next year, but we just think that if we're going to have a continued bull market and in, in equities, we need to see long-run bond yields get back down to something like 2% to force them into equities again. We don't see that happening because we think inflation has strong structural elements that will keep rates elevated above that level. Or you need a big earning cycle, bullish earning cycle plowed again. We think we we think we're nearing the end of the earnings downgrade cycle in Australia, but we don't see a big bull cycle in earnings early next year. So that uh, you know, if the market keeps running up to Christmas, and we hope we get the Christmas rally, we'll likely be taking profits and raising cash levels again. For those who are new to Milford and and wanting to understand a bit more about how you think about um, your portfolio, so what is it? Can you just elaborate? Yeah, I mean you've touched on a lot of it, but elaborate on some of the fundamentals that you consider and 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 maybe a bit on the investment process that you that you and your team how you approach your assessment of their stocks so yeah milford milford does top down and bottom up so we do um you know we're stock pickers like most other fund managers you would meet and talk to uh, have got a process for identifying good stock picks and that's what we call the bottom up work where we're a bit different as most fund managers don't really have much of a top down process they don't raise cash in their funds or, or do a huge incorporation of the macro world. So Milford's always done that as part of our process. So 
on the quickly to just finish off the top-down macro process, so we look at five factors called the five P's that we think can explain a lot of the market returns. Those factors are the outlook for profits, the outlook for policy, monetary and fiscal policy, the price of markets, which is valuation, so are they expensive or cheap, positioning, which is whether investors are particularly um, overweight or underweight equities, and the potential risk. So those are the five factors. We we do a rating score of those, and a lot of those factors are contrarian. Um, when everyone's super positive in equities, it becomes a negative factor in our process, and we we incorporate that into our view on that market, and that, that will drive our decision to raise cash or reduce it. Now, um, I won't labor that too much because we could spend 30 minutes just on that, but the bottom-up process, um, we look at six factors. Um, that's the quality of the management team, the outlook for the industry, whether it's got good growth or not, um, where that company sits. Is it is it a winner within the industry or is it just average Joe Blog who if the industry does well, that company might get dragged along um, in a favorable sense. Financials is where we do our modeling and look at the gearing and the cash flow conversion, um, the valuation of the business and then sustainability, which is our ESG process. So we, we look at those six factors, form a view, and then um, that'll go into a conclusion. Yeah what we think of that business. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll lastly, before we um, wrap up, two stocks that you're most excited about, if you want to share that with us. I'm going to go on a limb here and do two, two stocks with it. Uh, have a couple of catalysts that could cause the businesses to to go up 50%, but if those catalysts go wrong, they could also go down 50%. So bear that in mind. It's not advice. This is just ideas <laughs> shared. These aren't companies to beat the house on. They're companies that um, it's worthwhile having some of these ones because uh, you know often the companies that do well, you've got to take a bit of a risk. Uh, one's Neurin Pharmaceutical, uh, which is the, um, it's a small biotech company out of Melbourne, ticker NEU. Um, they recently commercialized their first drug in the US this year and start began sales of it. That's a drug treating Rett syndrome, which is a genetic disorder in children. So it's a, mm-hmm. a, this drug sort of gives them an enzyme in the brain that helps remove some waste, which is causing some awful issues with these young girls. They have an upcoming trial result in December for their second drug. It's a phase two trial for another drug that will, well, there's actually four phase two trials coming in the next sort of six to 12 months, but the first result will be in December. These are all for other genetic, rare genetic um, disorders. And so if these sort of, if one of these drugs is successful, would would see a strong run into the end of the year next to this business. And if some of the other phase two results go well next year, then this stock's got plenty of upside. And it's, um, it's sort of about fair value based on the value of the one drug they have proved today. So success in these other drugs will make this business worth significantly more. But failure... Uh, I could see the stock price down 30% in December if it doesn't go well. So maybe even more. So bear that in mind. Second one is a newly listed company in Australia, which is an old part of an old Australian business now, and that's Newmont, the gold miner, which now, of course, is, um, has taken over Newcrest, and we now have Newmont listed in Australia through a CDI. Listed just this month, yeah. Um, and hasn't done so well until today. As we speak today, it's 15th of November again. It's up um, up a few percent. But why why Newmont? Well, we you know step back a bit. Why gold? We think that the future years, gold will increasingly be sought out and as hedges by investors again. Now, the first part of essential banks are buying gold in mass again, and that's larger because many central banks around the world who do not feel particularly allied with the West or the US or Europe 
are looking to diversify their treasury and their FX reserves away from the US dollar and the US treasuries to alternatives and gold forms a big part of that alternative. So this is all in reaction to what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine and the West and US basically made Russia's FX reserves held in US dollars and euros worth nothing overnight. So if you're any, any country... And there's a number of them that I won't go through, but if you're any country around the world who thinks that it may fall foul of the West and in, ge- in the geopolitical world, and there's some sizable ones that do, then you, it, it's a bit of a no-brainer to be um, at least moving some of your FX reserves from from um, from US Treasuries to gold. On the flip side, we think geopolitics continues to get worse over the next couple of years, and that's likely to drive gold as a safe haven, even for other investors. Newmont's trading at, at its cheapest value versus gold for about eight years. It's nearly not far of its all-time lows of um, how it's valued versus gold. The company's down 60% since its highs a couple of years ago. It's as of the other day, it was you know it was trading at a, trading its two year lows. I mean, why is this when gold price it is nearly at its highs? Well, a couple of reasons is um, the company had to cut its dividend last year as cost inflation issues sort of hampered a little bit of their earnings. They've had a few production problems in some mines, um, processing of mines um, that have meant that their production guidance is is cut. It's likely they have to cut their production guidance one more time before these issues are resolved and that's been probably weighing on the share price and just the technical companies that make a big acquisition or like Newman buying Newcrest tend to be depressed for a while as it just mm-hmm. uh, technical sort of elements of the ownership of the company have just sort of depressed the share price so these things have all meant that this company's been a big underperformer versus our local gold miners like Evolution or Northern Star but it's, it's actually very cheap we think these production problems will be solved in the next six months the company's um, very good value. And if you happen to get a decent gold price next year, you could see this type of business re-rate 50, 60 or 70%. But for that to happen, you probably need some of the US investors to want to own it again. At the moment, the only thing US investors want to own is the Magnificent Seven tech stocks. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they're, they're not in anything else. But we, we think it, it, that'll change at some point. You'll see money ro- rotate out of those big tech stocks into other companies and that'll tend to be a catalyst to re-rate other stocks. Yeah, because we have seen that at times of the geopolitical um, issues where people will yeah look to gold. But I've, I'm already seeing in, in some of our asset flows uh, with our listed products a little bit of a shift to, to cash as well so that we do see those behaviours uh, kick in at times. Look, Will, thank you for joining us today. You've been generous of your time and of your insights. And I think what I've um, learned, you know, sort of reinforced in my understanding about Milford is you really have that value bent. You've got that top-down, bottom-up approach, and you've explained that really well for our listeners, so thank you. So just to recap, for all of those people joining us today, uh, listening in, the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund is quoted on the ASX under ticker MFOA, so you can uh, head to the ASX and look under that ticker to find out more information. And, of course, head to Milford's website Make sure you click on your country, New Zealand or Australia, and you can find a wealth of information there. Thank you, Will. Thank you. And a pleasure to be on. Are you keen to learn more? Why not visit the ASX blog, asx.com.au slash blog, for a wide range of articles, videos and insights from ASX experts, listed companies and investment professionals.